Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. From the Sheraton Centre Hotel in downtown Toronto, welcome to the 112th season of the Empire Club of Canada. For those of you just joining us through either our webcast, our podcast, or Rogers Television, welcome to our meeting. Now, before our distinguished speaker is introduced today, it gives me great pleasure to introduce to you our head table guests. I'd ask that each head table guest rise for a brief moment and then be seated as his or her name is called, and I request that the audience refrain from applause until everyone has been introduced. So, starting uh, with Mr. Bob Huggard, President and Chief Executive Officer, the Ontario Energy Association. Mr. Michael Southern, Manager of Government Relations, Suncor Energy. Mr. Johannes Sewer, the founder of Global Fruit. Mr. Tim Smithman, the second Vice President of the Empire Club of Canada, Director of the Ontario Energy Association, and Manager, Communications, Government, and Public Relations at Samsung Renewable Energy. Mr. Karim Bardesi, the Deputy Principal Secretary, Office of the Premier of Ontario. Ms. Tina Avanitas, the Director of, uh, Director of the Empire Club of Canada and Vice President, Government Relations and Communications at the Ontario Energy Association. Mr. Norm Reichman, Director, Market Development and Sales, Enbridge Gas Distribution. Mr. Steve Baker, the President of Union Gas Limited and a past Chair and Director of the Ontario Energy Association. The Honorable Glenn Murray, Minister of Environment and Climate Change. Mr. Lloyd Switzer, the Senior Vice President, Network Transformation, TELUS. And my name is Gordon McIver. I'm the Executive Director of the National Executive Forum on Public Property. This, ladies and gentlemen, is your head table. We have a group of students joining us today from Centennial College. Uh, students, would you please rise and be recognized? Welcome to the Empire Club. Now, ladies and gentlemen, to introduce our guest speaker, please welcome Mr. Bob Huggard, the President of the Ontario Energy Association. Thank you, Gord, and good afternoon, everyone. The OEA is pleased to be a co-presenter of today's program, and so it's my privilege to introduce our keynote speaker, the Honorable Glenn Murray. In April, Premier Kathleen Wynne announced her government wanted to take action on greenhouse gas emissions and added the responsibility of climate change to the Ministry of the Environment. She asked Minister Glenn Murray to find a way to meet the province's emissions reduction targets through the design of a cap-and-trade system. I'm sure we will all agree the minister has been given a tough job, yet he continues to impress us with his enthusiasm in the face of balancing a wide range of stakeholder interests. As President Lyndon Johnson once said, when the burdens of the presidency seem unusually heavy, I always remind myself it could be worse. I could be a mayor. <laughs> a, job that, a job title that the minister knows well. For those of you who don't know, Minister Murray served as the mayor of Winnipeg from 1998 to 2004, so he may have a very good perspective on this quote. Uh, 
the, um, to cut down the amount of time that we have in introductions, I would like to say that this afternoon Minister Murray provides us with a preview of his plan and will detail how Ontario will build on its actions to fight climate change and help to ensure that future generations are left with a healthy and prosperous province. So without further ado, would you please join me in welcoming Minister Murray to the stage. Well, I guess it's good afternoon now, eh? Thank you very much uh, for coming out, Bob. Thank you to uh, the Energy Association and our other sponsors for the great work you do. We are blessed in this province with such a skilled industry, environmental groups, and businesses, uh, which makes my job uh, a lot easier than it would be without you. And this is a, a shared challenge, a shared responsibility, and many opportunities for us to share together. And we're greatly appreciative for, for your leadership and some, some of the very difficult things that we need to deal with. Um, I, I want to just recognize a few folks here. Glenn Tebow, I think, is right over there. My dear friend, uh, our birthdays are three days apart. Um, and he's, he's working very closely in, uh, on northern issues on climate change and working with uh, forestry mining and on infrastructure in the north. So please do buttonhole him for that. We also have a, a working group ably led by uh, my dear friend John Godfrey, who's here. Um, there's also a few other members here, John McCabe, uh, Katie Sullivan, and Lisa DeMarco, uh, remarkable people who are giving us an extraordinary amount of time. So I would just like to, they want to stand up because you, they're, they're there to be buttonholed too because they're helping facilitate. So if those folks could stand up, that would be great. And uh, since we last met, we have a new Minister of the Environment and Climate Change federally, which is very exciting. And we've had, as you know, Premier Wynne has built uh, very strong relationships with, uh, with Prime Minister Trudeau and with uh, Premier Cuillard, somewhat legendary, uh, probably the strongest federalist partnership we've seen in many, many years. Um, and then I didn't know who Catherine McKenna was. I sort of knew her from afar and her reputation. And then I discovered that everyone who knows me seems to know her and vice versa. And within about five minutes of the appointment, I had my Twitter account filled up, my emails filled up, and my texts, and my roommate from university, who actually was one of her key campaign workers, said, this is going to be trouble. You two are like over-the-top enthusiastic about this. You're going to love each other in that. So I'm very excited about that. And uh, we have a, a new federal minister who's very, very, very engaged. And when we've gone for a decade without conversations between provincial and federal ministers on this topic, this is going to be a hopeful new beginning, which I'm very excited about. And I want to thank Catherine uh, and congratulate her. Um, I, I, I'm going to try and make sure we have some good time for questions, but I've got a few key things that I want to explain, and some of them may seem a little unusual. Um, and, you know, I, I've been watching my friend Christiana Figueres speak on these things, and she spoke here recently in Toronto. And, you know, she and I often talk about how do you do two things? Explain the gravity of the situation we're facing, which is very serious, and give some context for what that actually is so we understand it. But not understand it in a way to be dispirited or to be despair, but to be highly motivated about the incredible possibilities that come with the opportunities of what John Kerry and the U.S. State Department uh, outlined as a uh, $60 trillion, a $6 trillion expansion of the Western economy. And so the opportunities of a low-carbon economy are huge. They're also the way we save ourselves from, from some very difficult difficult situation. 
Um, I have till the end of this year to get the climate strategy out and to get a cap and trade system. The Premier has given a great deal of confidence in me and I have a great deal of confidence in her and that relationship uh, is very important. Uh, but she and I would both tell you that it's our relationship with you that is the most critical in this process. And uh, we've had a lot of time in the last year for consultation. I want to assure you as the uh, cap and trade regs the cap-and-trade sort of design process now goes into full consultation. You'll get even more of my time and attention uh, in the coming, because we really need uh, to do this with you and not to you. Um, but I do want to just spend some time on the problem, because I've realized that to understand the context for action, you have to understand or at least agree on the problem. And Dalton McGinty used to always say to ministers, uh, uh, Kareem Bardizio, and I've been through this before, we used to ask political staff, to what is the presumed problem that this is the solution that you're proposing, Minister? Because I think it's important to have context. Because if we don't define the problem together and understand the implications of it, it's, it's hard for us to act in unison. So I want to take you through a few things about what we mean by this. So right now, we're experiencing the carbon dioxide impacts uh, from when I was in elementary school in the, in the 1960s. Okay? So... This is old carbon dioxide. This is stuff that cycles through 50 to 100 years cycling, depending on a number of factors. The 400 parts per million of carbon dioxide that, that arrived on our, our doorsteps last year, uh, which, which, which put us past that 400 uh, parts per million, which is the danger zone, will not cycle through for another 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years, depending on a whole bunch of other factors. So part of the challenge we have is that we're locked into to some significant risks over the longer time. But I just want to, so what I'm talking about right now is what's happening in 2015. And just in the back of your mind, recognize that this is 50-year-old plus carbon dioxide emissions that are now just impacting on climate. N 1979, our Arctic, and I'm going to spend a little bit of time talking about the Arctic, uh, had a very full ice cap. That would be close to normal. 2014, you can see about 40% of it is gone. Um, and this is hugely consequential because of some of the other role, the role the Arctic plays in the global climate system and the jet stream, uh, the reflective power of the Arctic to keep our planet cool, uh, its impacts of ice and ice melts on oceans and ocean circulation, uh, levels of acidity in the ocean, uh, its impact on spring and seasons, and I'll come to that in a moment, uh, and also the, the amount of methane and methyl hydrates that are up in the Arctic if they were released would, would be uh, a pretty irreversible problem and an existential crisis. So we focus heavily on the Arctic. We sometimes think of the Arctic as something far away, a place that we've never been, a place where polar bears are having difficulty. We don't personalize the Arctic as having real impact uh, on, on it and the fact that it is more consequential. This is from Cornell University. On the uh, right-hand side of the screen is the typical polar vortex. For most of our lives, that's the sort of almost a compact jet stream that sits about 30,000 feet above the Arctic, contains cold weather out there, and it is the temperature differential between the Arctic and the equatorial area that actually manages the jet stream and manages the change of our seasons and manages the stability of the climate that allows things like pollination, germination, and all the things that we rely on. And it is the interaction of these things, more than it is Florida being underwater or some of the other things that you read about being the things that we're most concerned about. And when I say we, when the work we're doing with California and Quebec, uh, when we're looking at what are the critical adaptation issues around food and water security and those kinds of things. But you can see uh, in, in 2012 and 2013 how distorted that polar vortex is. Those large cold areas are breaking up. 
This is based on current levels, which is, which is a, an Arctic that is impacted by a temperature change from pre-industrial levels by about 1.7 degrees. So you can see just that small temperature change has had a dramatic impact on the most important piece of the, glo- of the, of the Earth's climate system. Understanding that it is very hard for us to change, about impossible, achieving a 7-degree to 8-degree warmer Arctic by 2050. So you can imagine the implications of an Arctic at 7 or 8 degrees warmer. And this is the thing that keeps most of us up at night and the case for urgency uh, because it is already showing different kinds of impacts, and you've experienced them probably in your own lives and in the newspapers. Um, this is it. So, so it can mean all kinds of things. So the North America last year was the hottest, 2015 was our hottest uh, uh, year as a continent. But you know from the winters we had, we've had some of the coldest and wettest Februarys and Marches. And you can see that because it's basically leakage from the polar vortex. Part of the destabilization of it means three quarters of, of, of North America is parched and dry. Our quarter is cold and wet. So you can see the you can see the extreme nature of this and the destabilization and the incredibly disruptive nature within a continent and within seasons that makes it very hard for us to live on this planet as this gets more extremely disruptive. We sometimes are not very literate uh, about what climate impacts are or now how to look at them. And, you know, the Canadian media has not carried this with the same depth as European and, and the American media. And, and I often, I, I read the Washington Post and I read the New York Times a lot because their climate change coverage has been really good. And the Pentagon and the U.S. Department of Defense came out with a series of analysis about what happened in Syria and what were the different events and how did we have a refugee problem there. It started in... Um, and please go look at these articles because they're quite interesting in the Pentagon report. In 2006, we started with the worst drought in the history of the region. And uh, that drought, and you can see, see, caused somewhere between a 60 and 80 percent crop failure. That led to somewhere between about 1.2 million and 1.6 million middle-class farmers losing their farms and the collapse of domestic food production. That caused those farmers, by two, at 2011, the study done by the U.S. State Department showed that they had basically become a refugee underclass in homes and in Damascus and the large cities. And it was at that time that the Pentagon and, uh, was saying, and, and the observation that, that Syria was, a, was immune to the Arab Spring, that it wasn't happening there. And shortly after, and I'm not saying, you can never say this is absolutely 100 only caused by climate, the, the, the drought, and you certainly can't say the drought was was the cause of what happened there. But these were all significant factors that led to destabilization of that and, and, and what came after. Then the Assad regime, for many, many reasons, destabilized, including this, and then ISIS, and then we now are at war. Uh, we have fight, we've had fighter pilots over there. Uh, Turkey and the Kurds are fighting each other. Russia's in there uh, fighting all the enemies of the Assad regime, the Assad regimes fighting the rebels, and it is one of the worst conflicts in the world that is leading to one of the worst and most difficult migrations, which was an issue in our last election. These are the kinds of things that when we talk about severe droughts uh, that that will become more common. Not that these things are happening only because of climate change, but they are happening more frequently. And if you go to that same latitude around the world, you'll start to understand how these things come home to us already on 1960s emissions levels. This is California's drought maps uh, since 2011 to this past year. You can see the, the abnormally dry, which is a significant problem, 
I, I think the exceptional drought is, is actually a recent one that they added. I mean, G- Governor Brown actually said to me, they've run out of adjective to describe how bad the drought is. Uh, this is a 40-year drought cycle that NASA has projected. There has never, ever been a 40-year projection before. They haven't had it. And why 40 and not 39 or 42 is because NASA doesn't project that far. And for climate stability and for Ontarians, that is 34% of the food production in Canada and the United States that we rely on as a winter country particularly of concern for us. And they estimate that for most of the major vegetables we eat, about 50% of the vegetables, the broccoli and healthy things we eat, uh, come from California on the vegetable side. So you can appreciate that in real time, and as this becomes a more difficult challenge going forward, food security and water security is a top of the uh, top agenda item when I meet with my counterparts in California and that. So this is, we can't keep going down this road. We've got to pull back, uh, and, and, and we've got to look at where our emissions come from. So industry is 28% of our emissions. and are coming down. Our industries are mostly below 1990 levels, and we're very proud of the leadership and the work that you have done. Uh, You are world leaders in that, and and, and we've had success already. So we're optimistic about the innovation capacity of our economy. Uh, The other place uh, is electricity, and as you know, uh, we're very proud as a government to have closed coal plants, introduced the Green Energy Act, electric vehicle uh, incentives. The government has worked very hard, as you have, alongside with you, learning from you, I think reciprocally, I hope, uh, in in, in seeing net reductions in both the, the industry and transportation sector. So the challenge going forward, because now we are no longer a pre pre coal climate change group. We're now joining the post-coal group because we don't have coal, and there's a big difference. Michigan is now trying to close nine coal plants in four years. They have some real challenges. So we're now in the same space that California and Quebec has. Almost entirely renewables or nuclear, very limited amount of fossil fuel generation, um, and we have to face the challenge, and you'll see the climate change challenge, and our economic opportunities relating to buildings, which are about 33 megatons, or just less than 20%, and transportation, which is 35% and 60 megatons. So you'll see a lot of focus right now on geothermal, on on insulation, on cogen with natural gas, a whole range of inverters. There's a great company called Royal Park Homes who are basically selling net zero zero buildings that give you a commuter monitor that, that, can you imagine the joy of this experience, watching your energy-generating home selling energy back into the utility and telling you how much money you made that month. You know, the Premier said to me, if you can figure out a way to cut carbon and cut people's home heating and energy costs, I'll I'll consider a success. So we actually think we're getting there. And many of you in this room have been our partners in looking at uh, whether you're in the building, construction, natural gas, clean energy, solar, wind, nuclear, all of you have worked very close to us with smart grids, smart meters, and all the technologies that we have to bring together to actually change ourselves from energy consumers to prosumers. And we have a large auto sector. And we know that you know, public transit does not solve the problems for everyone. We're, we're very proud of the enormous investments we're making that are critical to better designed cities, sustainability, reduced emissions, healthier population, better land use, uh, higher, higher uh, GDP growth that comes from, from transit. But we know most people in Ontario will continue to drive cars. So we have to be more innovative in that. And the demand for electric vehicles and low-carbon technology is going to be there. So we'll be putting a lot of attention into electric charging stations, building the infrastructure, and the systems we need, and working with industry to produce the products for and export those products so that we are global leaders in clean technology and low-carbon technology. But it's not just about new industries. It's almost like the information technology 
revolution, which was a one was a one trillion dollar expansion of our economy. Everything was affected by that. Every business process, every service industry. You buy a car today; it's a computer. Probably the biggest computer you own is your automobile. That wasn't true 15 years ago. You didn't buy it. Your car was not. You're also a computer. So information technology became part of every product. Low carbon technology will become part of every product. It is a similar transformation. So when I say that we have to seize these opportunities, we need transformative leadership across society. And so where we're going to be focusing now, obviously, is on the opportunities that come with buildings. We have to retrofit every building built in Ontario over the next few decades. That's a whole bunch of middle-class jobs. That's a whole bunch of skilled labor. That's a whole bunch of new ideas and technologies to put out there. And the result of that, as someone who lives in a condo, has replaced the HVAC mini units they gave me three times, and I go out and I've shopped around for the kind of low-carbon, low-energy technology you can install in a home or in a condo unit. It's amazing. And a lot of it is Ontario-made technology. And you know what it would do in my unit if I could, can retrofit my unit, which I like to see a government program to help us all do that? Um, it would No, wouldn't you like that? Wouldn't it be nice? Because it's hard to manage. For most working families, they don't have $11,000 to retrofit their heating, put geothermal in. You know, and Tesla battery solar kits are $3,500 right now. So there's, the market's opening up, and we know from our experience with the leading work we did in green energy, we dropped, we dropped uh, uh, solar panels that are now competitive with everything else. So, but, so can we help people? And then does that create more cost or friction in the economy? No, it doesn't because your heating and cooling bills and your energy bills are lower. So you can actually, if, if you were actually introducing a technology that raised the cost, that would be bad. That would create friction and cost and structural problems in the economy. But if you're actually introducing new capital investments in buildings that lower cost, you're reducing the operating cost and the life cycle cost of the buildings. And I learned this because there's an organization in Manhattan called the Durst Organization that bought its first building in 1928, never sold one, just built the Bank of America building, and builds almost net zero skyscrapers right now. And for 70 plus years, they have reinvested massively in the state-of-the-art technology. They don't need a retrofit program. So we know there are people who who have done it on a massive scale and have made money at it. As a matter of fact, they took me and showed me how much money they make, the ROI on their investments. And I was with some folks from Brookfield who got caught and started salivating at the returns on that. So we're trying to move from a low, car, a low productivity, because we're relative to Canada, relative to the OECD nations and the G7 is, has relatively low productivity. We have to improve our productivity, and that's paired with bringing down our carbon levels, our GHG emissions. So we're trying to go from a high carbon society to a low-carbon society and from a relatively low-productivity economy in Canada to a high-productivity economy. And that's a challenge with low dollars because it sometimes disincents investments in technology and robotics and the things we need to do. And with low oil prices, that's a challenge for the Canadian economy of many dimensions. So the partnership, the transformational leadership uh, is really important. And I'm going to close because I know you want some questions and I, I really want to hear from you. Just to give you third, three concepts around cap and trade, the qualities. It has to have integrity, it has to provide stability, it has to be clear. But why are we doing it with California and Quebec and why, why are we creating this partnership in the low carbon economy? Because together we're about the fifth largest economy in the world. And Ontario on its own can't work with industry to tip a market. But, you know, when, when you've got a GDP of $3 trillion and one of the largest, most affluent markets in the world, coordination between California, Quebec, and Ontario can actually deliver market demand, procurement policies, standards that make sense, that are good for business, and, and, and less complication, and a bigger market. Because we know the larger your carbon market, the more stable it is, the more choices you have. And everything we've looked at said, build a big, robust uh, 
uh, market within stable democracies with stable capital, which we, we do. The sooner you do it, the better, because as the caps come on around the world, China, Japan, Europe, most of the major world economies, South America, all are introducing caps on carbon and trade systems. The more you wait, the more expensive, because the caps are more restrictive, the cost of allowances, credits, and offsets goes up. So we want Ontario businesses to do that. And with Quebec, because if you talk to the trucking industry, if you talk to mining, it's one large regional economy, so it makes some sense to treat it as one economy. With a strongly federalist government in Quebec, we can do that, so we don't have a lot of red tape. We don't believe in a regulatory model that some governments have. And the other thing is capital. The way money comes, the money that comes out of the market has to go back into business and back into transportation infrastructure and transit and to building in the way that lowers greenhouse gas emissions for two reasons. One is we really don't want you to get to your reductions in Ontario, you and me and all of us, by investing in California necessarily, so we're investing in their plants to make their plants more productive. We want to see an inflow of capital, and that's how we're looking at designing our programs, and that's where we need your help, so that the money is flowing into Ontario businesses, manufacturers, into Ontario transit systems and buildings and infrastructure, making our buildings better, our systems more competitive, our economy stronger. That is really, really, really critical as the issue of capital flow. So we can't do this on our own. This is to create a market for transformative, transformative change. So I want to leave that with you, and I think we have some time for questions, Bob, and I want to thank you very much for coming out and uh, now, now giving me my reward for giving you a speech, which is to get your opinions. So thanks. The, the minister has said that he really appreciates getting questions because it's all part of the dialogue that he's looking forward to from all of us. So um, please, who, would, who has a question for us? I ask you if you don't ask me. I'm just warning. We have. I have a question over here. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Melly Dreos, Executive Director of Energy Vantage. I have a consulting firm here based in Toronto, but all my work is international. I work with the G20, the World Bank, uh, a lot of governments in dealing with the same issues uh, as you. I'm going to have a, a difficult question for you, I think. Okay. Good. <laughs> um, but first, let me just say, uh, uh, very encouraged by the leadership Ontario has shown in the off-call strategy. Mm -hmm. There's no uh, uh, doubt or question about that. Germany's emissions are higher today than they were in 2009. Mm -hmm. South Korea's emissions are higher today than they were two years ago. Australia's emissions are higher today than they were just six months ago. Mm -hmm. And the primary reason why that is is because they're very concerned about their industrial competitiveness. Mm -hmm. And therefore, they're going to the lowest cost margin way of producing energy uh, because they're very concerned about industrial competitiveness. And those, those are major countries that have major industries. I wonder how you plan to address Ontario's industrial competitiveness with the potentially an additional cost to their operations. Mm -hmm. So... I start with the challenge of climate change because there's no business plan that goes beyond three decades if we don't get to nearly a carbon-neutral economy by mid-century. And it's hard to internalize that. I was talking to the CEO of one of our largest companies who is a grandfather, and he said to me, he said, you know, I have a really hard time with this. My five-year-old isn't going to have a planet, may not survive to my age. 
That's, that's the gravity of what we're dealing with, right? So anyone who thinks there's a good business case for a high-carbon economy, please step up and we'll, we'll, we'll share some science and discuss that. Because if you actually just go, as my, my assignment for everyone is go and Google in seven or eight degree Arctic, which we will get to. That's not an avoidable. And just understand what that means for our competitiveness. Just look at the GDP loss in Atlantic Canada. We had four meters of snow for the first time on, on, on the streets of Halifax the last week of May, first week of June. So the productivity gains, when I talked about that, has to be real. We have to be looking at 2% 2, 2 GDP. We actually, unlike all of those other jurisdictions, met our targets. We're at 6% below uh, 1990 levels. And we are determined by improving carbon productivity and having innovation-driven uh, product productivity in plants and continuing the partnerships we have with the auto sector that saw unprecedented levels of improvement. Our auto sector uh, has to now move into different types of technologies because there's, there's a limited future for the internal combustion engine, as you can imagine. But we know they can do that because we've just come out of a partnership with the auto sector that has seen our auto production go to skyrocketing levels, way up, our experts going up, but it's more automated. You don't drop out of grade 10 uh, of high school and go work on the GM line. You go to UOIT and you do a degree in robotics or software. So, we so that's upskilling our labor productivity, right? Our auto sector labor productivity, our natural capital productivity, light waiting vehicles. All of that transformation. So you can't look at greenhouse gas emissions simply as reducing carbon dioxide coming out of industrial process. You know, I, I, spending a lot of, I spend a lot of time with two major forestry companies and one chemistry company. They have got rocking ideas for doing that. So we have to detach our GDP per capita GDP growth through a strong economic partnership from our, our material resource consumption growth and our greenhouse gas emissions, which we have done, and we are doing it. So we're seeing not just less intensity, but net zero. So I think we can do that. I think it's also understanding markets. This is a challenge for export development. You know, I say one of the things that people are starting to realize is what you were selling your, your product to, you know, we don't usually think about wood making tall buildings, but wood is all embedded carbon, right? It's one of the best products for making buildings. UBC right now has an 18-story uh, residence for engineering students. And when I was in university, I lived in the resident engineering residence. And I don't know what any of you are engineers or went through that. But if any building can survive being an engineering residence, <laughs> doesn't burn down, doesn't get blown up, it is about the most resilient structure you can. Natural gas and heavy trucks more than buildings now. Um, you know, uh, light, you know, oil, polymers probably more than burning up to make lighter fuselages for aircraft rather than burning up in the back of your car. So we're going to go through a real fundamental shift in repurposing many of the things we make for different products in new markets. I think we can't afford to be risk adverse. We have to be innovative. We have to be broad and visionary, and it's one of the few stable places in the world that isn't California, that isn't California, that, that isn't the prairies that saw horrible dry levels and fires. We have some stability here. So if we don't lead, we won't succeed. And the question for Ontarians is, it's not how big a part of the problem we are. We are one of the largest per capita carbon emissions in the world. It's how big a part of the solution we can be. And can you think of any other place with the kind of leadership we have politically right now and in business and labor and in the community and the NGO community that is better positioned to be a bigger part of the solution for our planet than us. And we owe that to our children. We have time for, we have time for one more question and we have a mic coming your way. Thank you for the good presentation. One of the differences 
between us and our partner jurisdictions, California and New York, is that they've invested much more in conservation than we have and reduced their demand much more. We have a conservation-first policy. Why don't we invest in all cost-effective conservation before producing new supply? And while we're at it, import water power from Quebec, avoid the high-cost nuclear rebuilds that are your government's plan, and put the savings into lowering our industrial electricity rates and funding public transit. But we do have agreements with Quebec, and I, because of the close relationship we have around climate change, David Hertel and I, I just spent two, I just spent my weekend with him, sleeves rolled up, uh, doing two days of hard work looking at at that. We, we, we have just uh, signed agreements. I think it's for 500 megawatts with Quebec. We have a reciprocal agreement during their peaks and our peaks are off, so we're, we sell each other energy. Uh, ours are ours are mostly ours is half nuclear and renewables, uh, so that's working through that. Uh, the nuclear power base, like most of the New England and Eastern Canadian, as a matter of fact, most jurisdictions in North America, we have a heavy base load. We have a lot of energy. Um, Bruce Power right now is out there uh, making the case for very low cost uh, charging for vehicles because, you know, if you could, you know, have low to zero cost energy from 10 o'clock to 5 o'clock in the morning, you can use that energy there. We have the architecture. I did some work when I was chair of the National Roundtable on Environment and Economy, and every province has built-in architecture. You've got what you've got as whatever your generation is, whatever your grids are. And we, we fortunately have smart grids, and one of the most greatest advantages we have in Ontario is we have smart meters, which is going to do, allow us to do a lot of things. So given we only have 30 years, we've got to redeploy those energy assets in ways that allow us to be able to reduce our emissions and our costs. So overnight, charging vehicles works really well. Redistributive energy is, I think, a big challenge because, you know, one of the questions I have, and Bob Trelli and I talk about this a lot, which is what, if everyone can get an inverter, a solar panel, and put geothermal and go off-grid and generate your own energy, this is the first generation that we have of just consumer-driven choice. Do you know, and I see that happening in many jurisdictions. I have friends who generate their own energy and don't want to be part of any system. So I think the, the, the questions you're asking about how do all the energy pieces fit are really complicated questions that I don't have answers for. And Minister Trelli isn't here. He's smarter than I am and can probably answer them. But I think those are good questions to put before him. But, but I think what, what we're trying to do right now is how do we get net zero buildings and how do we use the energy infrastructure we have right now to really power most of our vehicles? And we think there's opportunities with nuclear and with others. Um, and I'm happy to buy a cup of coffee and continue the conversation because I think that you've opened a, a lot of big questions. This is more fun than question period. Well, or it's a much better question period. Than that Minister one. Murray, you, you made reference, John Todd Alinkas, uh, you made reference to the benefit of the scale. You know my wife. Yes. Jenny yeah. Ginger. <laughs> We've met. Um, the, um, you made reference to the benefit of the scale of California and Quebec and Ontario. So, two part question. Firstly, what's the incremental benefit of the scale of being Canada? in California, or Canada and the U.S., mm -hmm. and what are the prospects of that scale being achieved? 
Well, you know, this is the first time we've had a serious conversation about Canada and on this issue, uh, because Canada and Australia, uh, I don't think we all ever understand the history books are written, how devastating the two countries that are the most modern, democratic, and environmentally sensitive tradition have been the Australians and the Canadians. You know, we backpack through Europe. We, we tend to live closer to the earth. We tend to be enormously proud of our lakes, our rivers, and our forests. And, and even as we saw them being threatened, we were the, some two of the first countries to drop out of our leadership role. We were actually one of the only countries that walked away from Kyoto. So, so it's late in the game now, quite frankly, for our national governments to be coming in. I mean, I, I think one of the pressures on my federal counterpart and, and Prime Minister Trudeau and Catherine McKenna is that we've lost a decade. We've lost a critical decade where a lot of stuff could have happened in this country, where I would literally sit at federal provincial meetings with my colleagues and all the provincial ministers would put climate change on the agenda, partnerships, infrastructure, public transit investments, uh, you know, green, clean, trans highway corridors with all the things. Couldn't even get the discussion. So we tried to do what we could. So um, I think Canada and now is a real thing, but we've got to work really hard. And I, I, you know, whatever your politics are, this is an issue that should be above partisan politics. But the other thing I want to say is the Climate Summit of the Americas we had, the MOU under two with California and the Climate Group, we now have over 70, uh, what we used to call subnationals, called infranationals, because many of us are separately sovereign, working. California, Quebec, Jalisco, Nuevo León, Mexico, Para Brazil, Rio de Janeiro, KwaZulu Natal, uh, South Africa, Gujarat in India. I can give you 72 of the major uh, economic regions, provincial state jurisdictions, and all of the world's largest federated states who, like Ontario, are responsible for energy, they're responsible for infrastructure, they're responsible for building codes, uh, they build buildings, they are responsible for subdivisions and land use and electricity and regulation of appliances and all those kinds of things. Our national governments, unless they're unitary, aren't. In all the federated states, it's us, the members of those federations. So the work that Premier Wynne and I and Premier Cuillard, David Hertel, Governor Brown, and my counterpart there, Matt Rodriguez, to build this international coalition of subnational governments is being effective. If you look at all of the leading jurisdictions, so when the majority of members of the Brazilian Federation, the Mexican Federation, and that, so successful has this been that we're now getting national governments in. And here, I, th I think, is the opportunity. When, when Premier Wynne hosted the Climate Summit of the Americas, Mexico showed up as the Mexican government as well as members of their federation. And Under Secretary Lacey said, look, Mexico wants to join with California, Quebec, and Ontario to build two things, a, a, a North American-wide carbon market and the green economy. We don't, as much as we love China, we don't want to be buying Chinese electric vehicles. We want to be making them here. And we all have a shared commitment to do that. So the Climate Summit of the Americas has created a multi-order level of government ability to build a carbon market. And I think when you're going to see in Paris, one of the things that's going to be showcased is Premier Wynne, Premier Cuillard, uh, Governor Brown, I think hopefully Governor Cuomo from New York soon, and the government of Mexico. I think there's, we're looking for an indication from the government of Canada to join in with the government of Mexico. Then you've got another major government. I'm fairly optimistic that's going to happen. The Canadian government, and this could be the tipping point, if they join in, we have a, we have a North American carbon market, which deals with problems of carbon border adjustments, which we have to deal with and deal with all those things, and opens that up. And means that we're not going to have trade or environmental barriers when we sell into Europe under the new European Free Trade Agreement or under the new Pacific Free Trade Agreement. We won't have barriers because we will have dealt with our carbon issues here and they won't be environmental regulations or trade barriers. Because if you don't deal with your carbon issues, uh, someone else is going to make, the Brits are going to put, the British are going to say, well, you can't have a bigger carbon footprint. We're going to look at that before we, you export. So, so I think the Canadian government brings that issue of 
being the level of government responsible for trade, to actually enable greater trade, and quite frankly, if it can play the same role that the government of Mexico has played, will accelerate our ability to get to the kind of carbon market and green economy that we so badly need. So thank you very much. I look forward. Please take the time in the next couple of months uh, to come and see me one-on-one or in groups. I know a lot of you have been in. I, I, I will juggle my schedule any way I can to spend time with you. We need to do this with you, and we need to find out ways that these market mechanisms, rather than regulations, enable your leadership to seize not just the saving the environment, but also seizing the business opportunity. So thanks very much, and God bless, and see you again soon. I hope. Minister, on behalf of the Empire Club of Canada and the uh, OEA Speaker Series sponsors, I'd like to seriously and sincerely thank you for joining us today and for providing us with such an engaging and informative speech. You know, you started by recognizing the gravity of the situation that we're facing, but to maintain the enthusiasm and the optimism that can that we have to have to overcome the, the carbon dioxide impact as we move towards low carbon uh, economies without decimating our quality of life, which I think uh, everybody pretty much agrees on. That indeed must be one of the biggest challenges that we're facing as a species of this, uh, of this planet that we inhabit. So we're very appreciative for you for being here today, uh, and we're very appreciative as well that this has become one of your government's most important and top files. Uh, we're also, and I think you would agree with this, really encouraged to see that the federal government has added those words, climate change, to the environmental ministry. Words matter, and uh, we were really encouraged to see that yesterday. So we look forward to further developments and working with your minister, your ministry as Ontarians uh, help to implement our climate change strategy. And as you said at lunch, it takes everyone in this room and everybody that's listening to us to make this happen. So uh, again, thank you so much, Minister. Uh, hopefully uh, you'll feel a little bit less lonely with some of the recent developments that are going on, and you'll find some great partners going forward in this extraordinarily important file. So thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to thank the National Post as our, as our print media sponsor, Rogers Television as our broadcaster, and we'd also like to thank MediaEvents.ca, Canada's online event space, for live webcasting today's event at a global level. Please follow us on Twitter at Empire underscore Club and visit us online at EmpireClub.org. You can also follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram. Uh, we have a lot of great events coming up. The OEA has a wonderful event on December 1st. Uh, I'm sure you'll want to join them when they discuss uh, behind the scenes. They have a behind the scenes live interview with Jim Hines, the former chair of the ISO and a director at Hydro One. Here at the Empire Club, we are looking forward in a couple of weeks to welcoming on November the 19th, Brad Wall, the premier of Saskatchewan. Uh, he will be our third premier in as many months. We also, in early December, you'll want to get your ticket and hear the governor of the Bank of Canada talk about what he sees happening in our country's economy next year. And we start the year with our traditional investment outlook lunch on January 5th, so please join us for that. And especially thank you all for coming today, for your attendance. This meeting is now adjourned. Thank you. Thank you.